Well, good evening. My name is Mark Oakley, and I'm the Canon Chancellor here at St. Paul's, and I want to welcome you here very warmly for this second debate of three in our series, The City and the Common Good, What Kind of City Do We Want? It is a series that has been possible to put on under the dome here because of our partnership with CCLA, a leading ethical investment manager and pioneer in the field, and we've been delighted to work with them in recent years on a number of events, and we're very grateful indeed for their sponsorship and support in bringing us all together this evening. In our first debate, we asked whether money has an almost magical ability to turn us into people we would prefer not to be without us even noticing, and whether, as a metaphor, money and monetary exchange show us by our decisions who we have become, asking whether humanity can manifest anything more than just survival or profit. And if regulation is not enough, the issues needing to be internalized in terms of the sort of life we find desirable with long-term goals and lived in common with the vulnerable protected, what shifts are needed and where to pursue a life together that might be termed good? What is the good life and what is it not? And what changes in our moral and economic system would be needed to realize it? If you were unable to be there, please do look at the St. Paul's Institute website to watch that whole debate. Tonight, we turn from the potential goodness of people to the goodness, or otherwise, of money itself. What has it become? Is its social purpose in danger of being lost? Should we be looking beyond our own attitudes and susceptibilities to the nature of money itself? Indeed, is there such a thing as good and bad money? Is making it a means or an end in itself? Is it in money's DNA that its use by one person will damage another? And in talking of economic growth, is it reasonable to ask not just growth for what, but growth of what? What is at the heart of money, if it has a heart? Some argue that economics should be a moral science, where, as Alfred Marshall put it, humans study the material prerequisites of well-being. Some reply by arguing that morally questioning money forgets the fact that money is a unit of account and medium of exchange and should not be treated as a sentient being. Nothing gets us going more than talking about money. And this debate tonight and this series continue conversations and learning that the St. Paul's Institute has been fostering since 2009 when on the eve of the second post-Sleeman meeting of the G20 in London, we hosted a public discussion with the then Prime Minister Gordon Brown and the Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. And a series of varied events has ensued, looking at sources of value, trust and meaning in financial markets and the role of those markets in human flourishing. 
and at the Institute we remain absolutely committed to facilitating and contributing to the process of public dialogue, scrutiny and revaluation, and with increased purpose and intensity at a time when the response to ongoing financial instability has moved well beyond regulatory reform and is increasingly and rightly focusing on issues of culture and identity and purpose and meaning. After four years of discussion about what has gone wrong and who is responsible, there is now a wide and loud call for step changes that will reinforce a culture of integrity. But objectives need identifying before steps. So, just what kind of city do we want? And tonight, how do we evaluate money? Money that everyone naturally thinks of when that word city is spoken of. Of course, Ogden Nash's poetry comes to mind at the moment. That money talks, I won't deny. I heard it once. It said goodbye. A series such as this needs someone not to just sit in the chair, but to command from it. And last time we knew we'd got exactly the right person to chair this series. She is, as Stephen Fry might say, a veritable peach tree in the summer orchard of panel chairs. We're delighted to have Stephanie Flanders here with us again, and her distinguished career has included working as speechwriter and senior advisor to US Treasury Secretary Lawrence H. Summers in the Clinton administration, as a reporter for the New York Times and the FT, principal editor of the UN's 2002 Human Development Report, and an economist at the Institute for Fiscal Studies and London Business School. She's won many awards for her broadcasting and is, of course, the loved uh, economics editor of the BBC. Stephanie will introduce this evening's speakers. And so, finally, welcome to each and every one of you, and over to Stephanie Flanders. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm, I'm delighted to be here uh, as a peach tree or as otherwise. Um, I thought about, on the way here, I thought about good money when we use the phrase good money after bad, it pays good money, serious money. You know, it seems like most of the ways that we talk about money, it's sort of good. You know, bad money means not enough of it, as in it's a good job, but the money's really bad. But what's interesting and what's been interesting to me with my sort of certain perspective on the financial crisis, trying to explain it to people and explain the economic implications night after night when many people wish I had better news to share with the nation. That in a sense, I think, you know, what, what part of this debate series is about is that the financial crisis has overturned some of those kind of easy phrases about money, our, our sort of easy consensus around money. You know, as long as the economy was doing okay, as long as the feeling at least was, though maybe not necessarily the reality, the feeling was that most boats were rising with the tide in the city. The vast sums being earned in the city and the, 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 the money being made in general in the city was good money. 
in society's view, or at least it wasn't bad. Of course, you were in the city, the money really wasn't bad at all. But now, I think, especially after the bailouts, we've seen in America and here and around the world, the money has somehow has turned bad. The same money, even though it's the same money, the same bonuses. You know, it turns out the social and economic context for that money is really important. And it's not just the financial value of stocks and shares and subprime property and everything else that's changed. It's actually somehow the, the social, the perceived social value of that money has somehow changed in the course of all these events, at least when it's going into bankers' bank accounts. So I think this is going to be, I hope, a really kind of interesting discussion. And we certainly have some of the right people, some very good people, to talk about it. Uh, Tarek Al-Eldewani is a former bond trader himself, or someone who was in the, in the city who now specializes in Islamic finance and has thought very hard about the future of money, how money could be reformed over the years. Paul Sharma is a, is a deputy head of the newly created Prudential Regulation Authority, but uh, has had a distinguished career as a regulator. And Anne Pettifor is someone I've come across over the years many times, now director of Prime, co-founder of Jubilee 2000, a well-known advocate on debt issues. So they're going to have a short response to the keynote speech tonight. And also, I hope, be responding to your questions, which I'll tell you more about later on. But first, we have Lord Robert Skidelsky, who has written, co-written with his son recently, a book which I thought put all of these issues very squarely and very clearly in the public domain. And I think sort of also expressed the appropriate amount of surprise about where we've got to, taking quite a long perspective on our economic and, and moral development over the last 60 or 70 years. How Much is Enough, the book was called, The Love of Money and the Case for the Good Life. Of course, he's also known for his absolute definitive study of Keynes. And I know Keynes has helped lead him in the direction of a lot of this thinking because Keynes was also someone who thought all the time about the many sides of economics and didn't think that the ethical implications of things and the future could necessarily be completely separated from the raw mechanics of how a market worked and that the value of things could change depending on what they did for society and how they were perceived. And that's a theme that was, you know, that's running through all his work. So uh, let me welcome Lord Skidelsky, ask him to come and uh, come up to the lectern. And uh, as I say, after he's finished, we'll have the responses and I'll tell you how you can be raising your questions as well. Lord Skidelsky. Uh, although I'm not preaching a sermon, years of compulsory chapel at school bred in me the belief that an address in a church always has to start with a text. And I want to take for my text this evening a passage from John Maynard Keynes's Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And in that, Keynes distinguished between the love of money as a possession and the love of money as a means to the enjoyments and realities of life. 
The first is bad money, and the second is good money. And I just want to revolve those ideas. I think it's an what Keynes made was an important and valid distinction. It's not money itself, but the love of money, which according to the Bible is the root of all evil. Money is simply the servant of our wants. It's the wants themselves which need scrutiny. And yet, having said that, philosophers and religious leaders have always been troubled by money, which is both the most trivial and the most potent of things. Money itself is completely useless. You can't eat it, you can't wear it, you can't make love to it. But it has always exercised a strange power and fascination. Aristotle, the earliest of the world's philosophers of money, set out to arm us against its uh, uh, traps. Money, he said, was sterile. Unlike animals, plants, and humans, it could not breed. Therefore, it was unnatural to try to breed money from money. And that's why Aristotle condemned usury, or charging interest for the loan of money. The Quran and the Vedic texts of India agreed with this. The Quran said that to make money from money was as, un was as unnatural as sleeping with one's mother. Usury, charging for the use of money, was made legal in England only in, in 1545. And Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, as you all know, was about the morality of charging interest on loans. Modern banking has carried usury to new heights. Not only do banks make money by charging for the use of money, they charge for the use of the money they themselves create. That's money breeding money with a vengeance. And today, there's a widespread feeling um, that the servant has become the master. And not only the master, but a Frankenstein's monster. We serve money rather than money serving us. Our interests and passions are shaped by money. And why is this? In the book, How Much is Enough? The Love of Money and the Case, of, uh, Case for Good Life, which I co-authored with my son Edward, we trace the ascent of money back to human insatiability. We want more stuff, not because we need it, but because others have it. Or it makes us feel superior to others. And in order to get more stuff, we need more and more money. The idea of money as a servant of our wants survives in that curious modern notion of financial services. But of course the fact is that money not only serves our needs or wants, it breeds them. As Gibbon shrewdly noted, without the incitement given by money to the powers and passions of human nature, societies would scarcely have emerged from the grossest barbarism. And Gibbon is surely not just talking about the development of credit facilities. He's talking about a greed for money as such. In fact, you could argue, and in certain moods I'm tempted to argue, that the demand for money is the primary human drive, and the demand for consumption 
secondary. The basic desire is to have money. You can't show others you have money unless you can display your riches. So, so consumption is a consequence of the desire for money rather than the other way around. And, and that's the theme throughout the discussion of the subject in history. The hunger for money was so extreme in the case of King Midas that he asked the god Dionysus to grant him the power to turn everything he touched into gold. The conquistadores searched Amazonia for three centuries, not for goods, but for El Dorado, the city of gold. And we're all familiar with the constipated character of Shylock, counting his hordes of ducats. These stories raise the interesting question of why gold became money. And the economist has his explanations. He can convert anything into um, something uh, that robs it of its uh, emotional importance. Um, it was the scarcity of gold, its divisibility, its durability that made it ideal money. It was also the most useless of metals, too soft for industrial purposes. Others, digging deeper, point to the symbolic power of gold, the accursed hunger for gold has been the subject of deep Freudian analysis, which it would be indelicate to repeat in a church. Suffice to say that Keynes looked forward to a time when the love of money as such would be recognized, he said, as a somewhat disgusting morbidity, one of those semi-criminal, semi-pathological diseases which one hands over with a shudder to the specialists in mental disease. Um, that was his hope for the love of money. But our civilization has gone in the opposite direction. Money has become the measure of almost everything. For example, leisure time is seen as costly because every extra hour um, enjoyed chatting to one's friends is one hour less for earning money. We increasingly think of activities not devoted to money making as carrying an opportunity cost in terms of money we have foregone. And the monetization of economic life, which goes on apace the whole time, blurs the distinction between money as a means and money as an end. To paraphrase Marx, we increasingly think of goods in terms of their money value rather than their use value. Houses, no longer places to shelter, but an investment for the future. Art, no longer to be enjoyed, but something to sell on. And I think Keynes hit the nail on the head when he said, the test of money measurement constantly tends to widen the area where we weigh concrete goods against abstract money. Our imaginations are too weak for the choice. Abstract money outweighs them. The love of money is stronger because we can't imagine all the kinds of goods that money might give us. And his conclusion was we want to diminish rather than increase the area of monetary comparisons. And the philosopher Schopenhauer had the same thought when he wrote that money is human happiness in the abstract. The abstract passion for money replaces the concrete desire for things. Money may be what makes, um, what makes um, uh, wealth grow, but it perverts the object of creating wealth, which is to increase the enjoyments of life. And so the means come to be valued 
um, above the end. And this has a number of perverse consequences, one of which is that we know from survey data that growth of GDP, gross domestic product, the money value of all the goods and services an economy produces in a year, does not, above a certain low level, increase the sum of human happiness. We know that it doesn't, so why are we still on that treadmill? What I've just said gives one a sort of handle on thinking about the role of the city in our economy. Um, let me give just one statistic. In the years leading up to the 2008 crisis, bank loans to the real economy increased by 50%, while to the financial sector they grew by 260%. In other, in other words, banks were increasingly lending to themselves. And that's a good example of money breeding money. And again, the Economist gives a neutral, bland account of the function of the banking system. The banks provide a payment system, they allocate capital, they manage personal finances, they manage risk. In return for providing these services, they get paid in salaries, interest, commissions, bonuses, and so on. And yet, we don't accept that argument. As, as, as our chairman said, since the financial crisis of 2008, we've been more and more suspicious of it. There are two main charges brought against bankers. The first is they get, get paid too much for the services they provide. And that's what Adair Turner, former chairman of FSA, said in an interview in Prospect on the 27th of August 2009. He said, the public are concerned about the overall level of pay in a financial sector which has swollen beyond its socially useful size and seems to make excessively large profits. Now, again, turning, turning to what an economist would say about this, faced with the possibility that a factor of production gets paid more than it would in a perfectly competitive market, the economist naturally seeks the explanation in elements of market failure. For example, absence of competition, um, asymmetry, inequality of information between the seller and the buyer, perverse incentives, and so, so on. And much of the current drive to regulate banking activities uh, aims at reducing these sources of market failure. Some reformers advocate a cap on bonuses. And a second charge uh, is that banks are actually inefficient in allocating capital. They lend too much money to each other rather than to investment. And that's why we have these periodic financial collapses. What's called macroprudential regulation by the Bank of England is aimed at mitigating this inefficiency by, for example, ensuring adequate capital to lending ratios. And all these reforms, these valuable reforms, are aimed at improving the efficiency of the financial services in meeting human wants. But they don't address the question of the moral quality of those wants. In particular, they do nothing to stop the increasing monetization of the economy. And so to go back to subject I started on, by good money, I take it we mean not just honest or efficient money, but money directed to the achievement of a good life. And in our book, Edward and I list seven essential elements of the good life. Health, security, personality, respect, friendship, 
harmony with nature and leisure. We think of these as being objective conditions of human flourishing. Money can't be good unless it's directed towards good ends. We may all agree that a financial system which is completely honest and efficient in satisfying the demand for pornography is producing bad money. But we're unable to agree what good money is and therefore prefer to leave it to advertisers to shape our wants. To go back to the text, the worship of money as a possession rather than as a means to the enjoyments and realities of life is bad. To challenge the challenges, as it was in Keynes's day, to create a social system which is both efficient economically and efficient morally. And we haven't got there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, now I should tell you, and uh, I know I'm going to have to encourage, on past performance, I'm going to have to encourage you to do this, but you have pieces of paper on which you may write questions. You need to hold them in the air, even though it seems rude, even if someone is talking, you hold them in the air in order for someone to come and get them, and then for you to actually then be able to ask a question later on. So please do not be embarrassed. Uh, to hold your bits of paper in the air. In fact, there's one already prized to the um, first person for ah. lifting his uh, two. See, there you go. It's, it's, we're doing much better than last time already. Uh, I, I, I introduced uh, the speakers very briefly earlier on, and I know you also you know a bit more about them from the, from the programs as well, but I think we do have lots of different perspectives to respond to Lord Skodelsky's comments. And I want to first hear from Tarek El-Diwani, who has very practical experience of grappling with some of these issues and the interconnection between the ethical and the financial in his experience as, among other things, an expert in Islamic finance. So, uh, Tarek, a few minutes of your initial remarks or comments. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, to give an Islamic perspective on this, I think it's probably the, the way I can add most value to the discussion and uh, then link it into what Robert said, and thank you for that, uh, Robert. Um, um, I, there are a couple of things which I'll mention, um, which you said, I'll give a slightly different view, but uh, just to start, the Islamic perspective on this financial crisis really has two main uh, legs. Um, one is the, uh, which is still a very firm, uh, prohibition in Islam and has been in many other religions, not just Christianity and Judaism in the past, uh, and is still adhered to in the Muslim world. Um, and the other prohibition which is relevant is the prohibition of certain legal actions uh, which today um, allow banks to create money out of nothing. Uh, just to deal with the usury issue first, um, the Islamic perspective is that if investment is made into a business, it should be on a profit and loss sharing basis. So if you're a financier, you invest in a, a business, the business makes a loss, you have to share that loss. If the business makes a profit, you share that profit. It's seen as innately fair 
uh, and it's seen as innately unfair that a financier should try to make a profit if your business has made a loss. Uh, when funds are advanced on an interest-based loan, then the bank or the financier typically looks to see whether the person is a wealthy person. If he or she is, then the bank can take security on their assets. Um, even if the borrower's business goes badly, the house can be repossessed and sold and the loan repaid. So in an interest-based system, money tends to be advanced to people who are already rich because they're the ones who have the most collateral. If you're in a profit-based system, money is advanced to those with the best projects. And poor people, poorer people, can have good projects just as easily as richer people. And so in that kind of system, where you're sharing profits, wealth inequality tends to reduce because everybody has a share of the pie of capital. Now, we have a system where the bulk of today's money is loaned on an interest-bearing basis. Half the cost of your home purchase over 20 years goes to the bank in the form of interest. It means that to get one pound's worth of house, you have to spend two pounds. And that inevitably reduces the quality of all things that you buy under an interest-based system. The second major issue is that the money that the banking system is lending to you, most people have the idea when they go to a bank to borrow money that the money they're being loaned is money that someone else put in the bank beforehand. And you touched on this, Robert. Actually, the bulk of our money is created by our banking system, the Lloyds, the HSBCs, the Barclays. When you go to a bank, they literally create out of nothing the money they lend you. It was very easy to see this in the old days when banks printed paper receipts promising to pay gold, when in fact they didn't have much or any gold in the bank vault. They were literally printing money out of nothing. And if I was to do that, if I created money out of nothing in my home, it would be a criminal offence called counterfeiting. And if a company accountant created money in the books of the company, it would be called cooking the books, and it's a criminal offence. So to allow a bank to create money out of nothing is to allow a fraud at the heart of our financial system. And it gives banks enormous power. I mean, they can choose who to finance, who not to finance. I mean, huge patronage over governments, over corporations, over individuals. You can set down the policy for developing countries, make all kinds of unreasonable demands to satisfy their own political or economic needs. But it also creates this boom-bust economy when banks lend lots of money, you go and spend it, we have jobs, property prices go up, we have a boom. When they call in their loans, you have to sell your house, sell your shares, we have a bust. And to have this kind of economy is really not just uh, unjust, it's irrational. And, you know, when you say, Robert, that bankers get to pay too much, as a common criticism, I don't mind as a Muslim, you get paid too, you know, a lot of money for doing a good job, for doing something useful, and it's fine. The problem is that we have institutionalized fraud, and what the ordinary people sense, but probably don't understand, most of them, is that this fraud of money creation, the, the fraud unspoken, is at the heart of the problem. And unless we address this, as Lord Turner did in his speech in South Africa just a year or so ago, when he said that the cause of the financial crisis is the abuse of the power of money creation by the banking system. Unless we address this fraud at the heart of our system, nothing else will be right. Thank you very much. I think...
we already have in, in Lord Skidelsky's speech and in this first response, I think just an enormously meaty um, meat, for want of a better phrase, <laughs> meaty meat for discussion, um, because that's even in just Tarek, Tarek's remarks just now have raised you know, so many more questions on top of those uh, highlighted by Robert. But Paul Sharma, a rather different perspective of the, of the regulator, the person who's now, as of about four weeks ago, sitting in the new improved financial regulator that will be very different from the old one, I'm sure. Thank you uh, for that introduction. Uh, I should, since I come from the regulator, first of all say that um, I'm here giving you my personal view and the comments that I, sh I, I will make should not be taken to be those of my organization. If we are to talk about money with any accuracy, with any hope of progress in our discussions, I think we need to dwell a little on the question of what is money. When I look at the Old Testament, uh, uh, when I look at, um, which I do with far less expertise, at some of the uh, Islamic texts or some of the texts of other religions, I'm struck by the quite different monetary context that applied at the time that those texts were created. Let me perhaps illustrate this with, with, with reference to, um, I think, the uh, let me serves you correctly, the book of Leviticus, uh, which set up a system of money and a system of credit that applied essentially in a community that was agricultural and essentially in a community of self-sufficiency, of individual self-sufficiency. In that uh, 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 society, uh, uh, they still needed to deal with a couple of problems. One was where an individual ran into particular need or want. And there, lending was a form of temporary help to somebody who actually needed charity. And in that context, um, a great deal of, of, um, uh, of the biblical text is spent warning against the evils of, of, of interest. Again, if I don't remember, if, if I don't remember incorrectly, I, I think in the book of Nehemiah, post-exilic, anyway, post-exilic Israel, there was a strong warning against the outrageous rate of interest of the one in one hundredth part, a, a, a level of interest that uh, perhaps um, seems almost contemporary. Uh, there was, in that society, a quite different uh, uh, set of answers to some of the problems that are today being dealt with by money. So, for example, consumption smoothing throughout one's lifetime was not a problem that was dealt with by money in that society. How was consumption uh, 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 smoothing through one's lifetime dealt with? It was dealt with through grandparents and children. It was dealt with by, uh, 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 within a family context. It was dealt with by the young within a family looking after the old within the family. Nowadays, it is largely dealt with, actually, by the accumulation of assets, by the saving of money and the accumulation of assets. Secondly, how was extreme uh, 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 misfortune dealt with? It was dealt with by the 
temporary alienation of one's property rights to be restored in the uh, 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 year of the Jubilee. And I think if you read the biblical text closely, um, there is some indication that perhaps, at least at the margins, there was some taking account of the time value of money in that type of transaction. But it was very much marginal. The question, I think, the, the, the moral question and the theological question, uh, which I think has received too little attention, is not so much how does one take that situation and bring it into, let's say, the 15th or the 16th or the 17th or even the 19th century, uh, 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 centuries when one still had commodity money, but how does one bring it into, uh, let us say, the 21st century, uh, a, a century in which we no longer have commodity money, we have fiat money, a century in which the saving of money and the investment of money is our primary means of, uh, 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 of dealing with our, uh, 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 with our old age, um, a century in which significant coordination between individual economic actors is needed. Again, go back to the, uh, uh, to the self-sufficient economy uh, 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 from which uh, many of the theological learning occurs, the relative unimportance of trade within those economies was a key part of, 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 of uh, uh, what is said uh, uh, about money. Um, today, we, each one of us uh, 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 self-manufactures virtually nothing of the things that we consume. In other words, money has assumed the, uh, uh, the economic importance that it has because we have moved uh, uh, um, over a period of uh, uh, several thousand years uh, uh, to, to the primacy of trade as the basis of our, uh, of our economy. There is, I think uh, both speakers have mentioned it, there is a point about money that it is a powerful tool, and like many powerful tools, it has the potential to be used very significantly for the good and very significantly uh, for the bad. But what is perhaps a little underappreciated with respect to money is the extent to which the monetary system now is a tremendous innovation, tremendous technological innovation as compared to the monetary system even a generation ago. If, we, if this were a different type of technology, there would have been very significant moral and theological debate about the, the ethical consequences of that innovation and technology. If, if, if this were, um, uh, uh, let us say, uh, um, uh, human cloning or genetics, uh, if this were nuclear technology, if this were uh, 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 sort of a... Uh, uh, um, uh, technology that rested in either the in one of the physical sciences, um, there would, and indeed you, you need uh, uh, not look very far to see the truth of this, there would have been a very considerable debate about how that technology can be used for good, and the, uh, and, but also about the new opportunities that that technology uh, gives rise to uh, for harm. Rather like the debate, for example, just a day or two ago about uh, uh, 3D copiers being able to print guns that can be used to fire people, uh, fire at people. Uh, um. My point about money is it is an absolutely indispensable part of our life, and it is an indispensable part of our life in a way 
in a quite different way than the way it was a somewhat dispensable part of the life of, uh, 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 of people in former ages, especially if you go back uh, uh, to the ages of the uh, biblical or other uh, uh, sacred texts from which a lot of the moral teaching on money occurs. Even if you go back to Aristotle, Aristotle, uh, Lord Skrzydelski, could have lived without money. It would, it's perfectly possible to have lived within, in, in, in Athens without, mon, without money. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, it is not so within any kind of modern society. Just very briefly on uh, uh, the colleague who's, who spoke about um, the, the, uh, the creation of money uh, by the banking system. Uh, whilst I wouldn't necessarily agree with, with the precise points you made, which by the way were very akin to those made by the Austrian School of Economics. Uh, I, I think Ludwig von Mises would have agreed with every word that you said on the creation of, of money. I do think you are on the right subject because you have spoken about the theological and moral consequences of modern money as opposed to merely the theological and uh, moral consequences of uh, 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 of the commodity money of a, of a former age. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. That's a very interesting point about would we, should we have had the same kind of debate that we would have about the ethical implications of cloning and other things. I mean, I guess, I think some people would say there was a debate, but it was an entirely one-sided debate. All the debate was around the wonderful things that financial innovation could do. And although the likes of Warren Buffett said that derivatives, for example, were weapons of mass, potentially weapons of mass financial destruction, that was not listened to nearly as much as the voices of people saying, look at all this wonderful risk sharing it can do and this, that, and the other. So I think it's an interesting point, but I suspect it was also just the fact that it was only seen in a positive light and the, the positive, the potential negative implications were not just not discussed. I think they just weren't recognized by people who should have recognized them more clearly. And they've, they've said since, people like uh, Alan Greenspan, that they do now recognize it. Anne Pettifor, and who I first came across campaigning for Jubilee 2000. It was always an issue then, talking about the morality of forgiveness of debt versus the need to pay back your debt. Anne. Yes, thank you very much, Stephanie. Yes. Um, I'm going to be a little contrarian, I discover, on the panel um, tonight. I'm going to say that I think money is a jolly good thing. Um, and I, um, I'm going to qualify that, of course, but I want to start off on that note. We've been told by our politicians in the last few weeks and months that there is no money. There is no money to deal with to the health service. There is no money to invest in job creation. Uh, there is no money uh, to improve our infrastructure. And there is certainly not enough money to deal with one of the gravest threats there are, there is, to our national security, i.e. energy insecurity and climate change insecurity. And thanks to the system which Tarek outlined, which 
I absolutely agree, originated in deceit and fraud when the goldsmiths pretended they had more gold in their vaults than receipts they were circulating as representative of that gold. Nevertheless, the creation of money out of thin air has been, for me, from my point of view, a great civilizational advance. It means that contrary to what our economically illiterate politicians say, there need never, ever be a shortage of finance. Under a modern, monetary, well-developed system, backed up not only by a central bank, but by a, just, a legal and justice system, a criminal justice system to enforce contracts, and by those, that kind of institutional backing to a currency and to money, we are in a position where we should never, ever be short of finance. Mrs. Thatcher made a very famous speech to the Conservative Party conference in 1983 in which she said, the state has no money. The only money we have, she said, is what we take from you, the taxpayer. Well, what happened in 2008 when the state, in the form of central banks backed by taxpayers, found, according to the Congressional Government Accountant, Accountant's Office in the United States, generated $16 trillion in finance to bail out the banking system. Governor Ben Bernanke, who, when he gave the first ever television interview of a, federal, a governor of the Federal Reserve in 2009, actually, in March 2009, was asked, now, where did you get that money from? The day before that, he'd bailed out AIG, which isn't even a bank, to the tune of $160 billion. And the journalist said to him, now, Mr. Bernanke, where did you get that money from? Did you raise it from taxpayers? And he said, oh, no, no, he said. We have at the Federal Reserve something that your commercial bank has, and indeed every commercial bank has. It's called a computer. And we enter a number into the computer and we charged it to AIG's account and we created $160 billion. Now that's an extraordinary thing, but may I say that in that case, it was an amazing thing. The fact that the central banks could mobilize finance to bail out a rotten banking system saved all of us from a fate far worse than we've faced since then. So I am one of those who agree that the goldsmiths must have cheated when they pretended they had more gold in their vaults than the receipts that they were issuing and which quickly became money. But what the goldsmiths did was something quite miraculous. First of all, they made a very sound judgment about the value of the currency by which merchants could exchange goods. Not for which, but by which they could exchange goods. And that judgment was a clever and fine judgment to make. Secondly, by issuing pieces of paper, notes, 
which were then used in exchange between merchants. They mobilized the trust and confidence that existed within the business world and enable merchants to do business. And things thrived after, 16, after the 1640s when the Bank of England, the, the foundation of the Bank of England and of a modern monetary system with institutions to back them up because, of course, people cheated and they needed to go to jail if they lied about, about the value of their goods they were exchanging. That enabled Britain to invest in the Industrial Revolution. Now, I've worked in many developing countries which don't have monetary systems. I've been, I go spend quite a lot of time in Nigeria where people walk around with plastic carrier bags of US dollars. They don't have credit cards in Nigeria. They don't have a system of banking based on trust and confidence which is enforced by a legal and criminal justice system. And so they, they have to use other currencies and so on and so forth. So I want to argue that Yes, the creation of money out of thin air by entering a number into a computer or a ledger is an immense power. But it is an amazing power. It means we can afford to look after people with Alzheimer's. It means we can afford to fund artists to create wonderful works of art. It means we can afford to deal with climate change. But the problem is that we've taken that enormous and wonderful power, which is actually our own power, and our own trust and confidence and good-naturedness and good and honesty, and we've given it to a small elite based here in the city of London and told them they could do what they like with it. Now, between 1945 and 1971, under the rule of Keynes, the power to create money was regulated and managed. And you know what? Between 1945 and 1971, we don't seem to have had as many evil, greedy, spectacularly consumptionist characters who threw great parties like the one thrown by a hedge fund guy at Waterloo Station not long ago, Arcadia. He dressed up uh, the, the old Eurostar bit of uh, Waterloo Station as Arcadia and threw this amazing party for his friends and on the side raised a bit of money for charity. We didn't have that sort of thing go on between 1945 and 1971. We weren't able to borrow money by just talking to someone at the end of a telephone. We weren't able to take out a mortgage without being able to show that we were going to be able to generate the income over time to repay that mortgage. But by 71, we began to lift the regulation and co controls that Keynes had ordered for the financial system. He had learned from the 29th crisis that you couldn't allow the banks to create credit or money out of thin air as vast a space. That had to be regulated, it had to be managed. But before, after 71, I mean, and the run up to 71, and Nixon's decision to unilaterally bail out of the Bretton Woods system, the bankers had applied so much pressure on politicians that they began the process of deregulation and decriminalization of the sorts of activities that we've seen. So when it comes to blame, I'm more inclined to blame the politicians who made the laws or unmade the laws which enabled bankers 
to behave so badly and to behave so greedily, and which encouraged a culture. Because I don't believe that we're all inherently horrible and greedy and evil. I, honest, I grew up within a, a Calvinist church, the Dutch Reformed Church of South Africa. My mother was an Anglican, my father was a Calvinist. So, and I grew up in this thing about people being intrinsically naughty and evil, and I, I don't accept that at all. I believe that if you give them a framework, a regulated framework in which money can be used usefully, the question isn't the availability of finance, it's how it's spent. If it's to be spent in productive, real activity, um, it is a very, very good thing. So I celebrate money. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. We're coming There is there's traditionally a moment, obviously I'm the, uh, the BBC economics editor and I have no views about anything, but there is traditionally a time in these things where I sort of stand up for some aspect of modern market economics or financial system. And I thought that Anne was going to do my job for me, and in many ways she did, because she talked about this immense power for good that a modern financial system has, and at least this particular aspect of the creation of money. But I do wonder whether there's a theme or a tension that's running through some of the remarks, a sort of us and them feeling about this, where whether it's the institutionalization of fraud or the moral or economic failings of the post-71 era in global economy, we tend to forget that we've sort of been part of that. I think uh, the fraud of the creation of credit, if it is fraud, and all of the things associated with that in the boom years, you know, a lot of people got a lot of mortgages with that. We were all quite happy with that system. Many people were happy with that system, which was one reason why politicians continued to support it. So I, I do wonder sometimes, we, sort of, we tend to now only see the negative and we tend to see it as a cabal of politicians or, or financiers. And of course, there was plenty of just straightforward fraud and error that happened. But at some sense, we were all part of it. And um, uh, Lord Skodelsky was talking about market failure, and that's one way that economists do talk about the failures in the system. But I, I thought there was a sort of um, one theme in his remarks was that it was not just a market failure that had occurred. It was a, a failure of, of all of us or a failure of society, of the direction of society, that we are measuring everything in financial terms. And that's not just about the flaws that were in the Bretton Woods system or not in the Bretton Woods system. You know, in, before 71, it was very hard for people to get a lot of the things that people want to have now, whether it's a mortgage or a, you know, the higher purchase arrangements that you had to go into to buy a, buy a television. You know, a lot of people would not want to go back to that era, even if they're very against what's happened in the city. So I do think there's uh, maybe another, there, there are different aspects of this that maybe we could uh, get into. Um, a few questions, and then we could go back to our um, panelists. I'm just making sure that I have the right orders. I hope it's right. It's Dick Rogers, and I guess, shall I just say, so I'll take three together, but it's Dick Rogers and is the first speaker. First question. Is that right, or do I not have the right question? Or is, you're, do you want to make your way? 
there's someone standing there which made me think I, that was the per you that was you but it's not you Janet Spruill and John Courtnidge will be the other two people with questions if you wanted to also come to the center aisle Janet um, shall I go yes Th thank you so much for uh, letting me ask this question. Um, sh shouldn't, we've touched, sort of, we've got quite near this, but we haven't completely unpacked it. And I, I, th I think it's really important that to understand that the, the circulating currency of our nation at the moment is created, if positive money, a group that I follow, is correct, by being lent into existence by banks at interest, and then when the loan is repaid, the money then ceases to exist. So it's very unstable. And also, it shouldn't be uh, that the creation of money out of nothing is fine, but it shouldn't be the commercial bankers doing it and deciding how much is created. It should be salaried people at the Bank of England acting as a public servant who should very cautiously, month by month, judge how much money is optimal for to be in circulation in our currency, create it, and give it to the elected government to spend on things the electorate want it spent on. And if we're wise, we should have it spent on things that help us to earn a living uh, by exports. What do you think of that, Lord Skodelsky? Uh, and the others. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Janet Spruill, is she? And if um, if John Courtnidge could also make his way to the centre, just so that we don't have a pause. Too much of a pause. Uh, my question was, what what was what is the first step the banks should take? The banks, are presumably, with the active encouragement to make of society governments. fairer. <laughs> yeah. Or should they be asked to take? I guess as a, yeah. And John Courtnidge. Uh, I'm grateful to the panelists for their comments because my question evolved as they were speaking, and so it is: Do the panelists agree with Jesus and with Keynes? that charging and receiving interest, in other words, usury, is wrong, should it be abolished? There is an anonymous question from, from someone here that was a, that's related to this question, which was that if it's not all right to lend money for interest, is it all right to spend the same sum on a house and rent it for the same amount, which is another one, is an example which, which comes up in this context. I don't know who wants to respond first. Lord Skodelsky, well, you also should get a chance to respond a little bit to the comments. Yeah, but I'll, I'll, I'll wait, mm. wait for that. Um, let me respond to the, the question, should usury be abolished? Well, no, I think, I think for, for some purposes, taking, um, charging interest for loans um, is, is, is fine. Um, for many purposes, it's fine. In fact, um, Aristotle's authority on that started to disappear in the later Middle Ages. When it was, uh, when interest was allowed, if there was a genuine alternative use of money, 
that was being sacrificed in order to make the loan. In other words, if there was a use for the money and you were actually um, um, foregoing that use by lending it to someone else, you, 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 could, you could charge interest on it. In other words, the interest rate should be equal to the opportunity cost of parting with the money. And I think that distinction is fine. I think what Keynes objected to was simply um, people sitting on a lot of money because they were scared or they, you know, the future was too uncertain, and then charging rather high interest for the use of that money because that gave the power to the lender. It was a lender's premium, and it put it put the borrower, um, it put the borrower, um, uh, it made the borrower uh, a victim of the lender, essentially. It put the borrower in the power of the lender. And so I think Keynes wanted very low interest rates as a, as a, as a, as a, normal, as a normal thing to equalize the power between the lender and the borrower. And I think, I think one of the things we ignore somewhat is power the way power is distributed between lenders and borrowers. We talk about it simply as mutual needs or, you know, we use a kind of language of consumption smoothing over a lifetime. And I don't think they get to the, um, to the real heart of the, the power question. I, I, I just want to answer that question and, and maybe leave, leave my fellow panelists to deal with the positive money. Yes, Paul, so let me try and deal with a couple of questions. I think the last questioner said, do I agree with Jesus um, uh, and, the, Keynes. The, and Keynes? Um, Someone on Twitter has said that is the best ever start to a question. Yes. <laughs> I am actually better read on Jesus than Keynes. Um, so I don't recall him actually speaking out against interest as such. Um, if I recall the parable of the talents, that does indicate a preference towards profit-sharing type of entrepreneurial activity. But nonetheless, uh, uh, the, uh, to the unfruitful servant, the message was, well, if you couldn't have done that, you should at least have put your money out to interest. I don't think he would have told that parable if he thought that interest was an absolute uh, uh, um, evil. You, you could say, well, he endorsed the Old Testament and the Old Testament has uh, language against uh, uh, interest. I, I think, though, the prohibition on interest is within the faith community, i.e., the prohibition on interest was with respect to those to whom one owed the duty of charity, and the presumption was that they were borrowing money in order to meet a, 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 an urgent need, that they'd fallen into, uh, into want. There, there wasn't, I don't think, in the biblical text, any prohibition on interest or, 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 or when lending to people outside of that kind of uh, uh, commitment. Uh, as I said in my, in my remarks, I, I, I think um, uh, uh, that we live in a different kind of society where the basic assumption of self-sufficiency does not translate to today. Today we need exchange, therefore we need money. Any, any economy that deals with money has to represent, ha, has to recognize the time value of mon money in order, to, uh, uh, in order to achieve some of the good things that we wish to uh, uh, see being achieved uh, 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 in, respect of, uh, in respect of money. On the positive, uh, the, positive uh, the, the money supply uh, question, whether that, um, um, I, 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 I won't, comment at length of that, except I, 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 I take the, the premise of the, the, the question, which is the, the quantity of money, the creation of fiat money, 
is a matter of public interest and one on which um, ultimately society's wishes uh, should prevail. And, and if I might, just one brief comment on the, 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 the events that occurred in 1971. The system in 1970, up to between 1945 to 1971, that system did not collapse because it was replaced. It was replaced because it collapsed. Uh, and prior, as, 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 as uh, a chairman was saying, prior to 1971, there were a number of features to that system, one of which was we didn't just have regulation of the banks, but we also had regulation of consumers. Yeah, the, uh, uh, for example, higher purchase deposit, uh, uh, um, minimum deposits, etc. Uh, for example, uh, prohibitions on you taking more than a certain, more than a small amount of money on holiday with you abroad. There's a whole, it was actually, it was the whole of society that was regulated and not just the financial system. Tarek, do you want to respond to, to some of this and um, the question about uh, the control of money and also whether usury should be abolished. I mean, yeah. I guess there has been, certainly from some of the other panelists as well, a, a feeling that um, there are some good things that come out of that system as well. Do you actually think, in concrete terms, it's a practical thing to abolish it? Do you think, and, yeah. and would you accept that there would be some very unpleasant consequences for a lot of our our modern consuming public if we did that? Right. Um, well, there are many societies and cultures around the world over the, the last two, three thousand years, I think we can go that far, at least we have good records, to show that an advanced society in terms of having uh, education, international trade, art and culture, stability, uh, strong military force is a sign of uh, economic power. Um, those are features of a successful economy and certainly if you look in the Muslim world, in Muslim Spain, the Ottoman Empire, the Abbasids in Baghdad, the Mamluks in Egypt had these things over several centuries. Muslim Spain was seven centuries, all of which was built without a bank, without interest-based lending. This cathedral, the designer of this cathedral, Christopher Wren says that the Gothic style comes from the Saracens and should be called Arabic architecture. It was imported from Spain. The Renaissance came largely from Muslim culture. And so we have a very good example there from not too long ago that a different financial system is capable of producing success without everybody being up to their eyeballs in debt. There's no history of debt crisis or boom and bust in Muslim Spain very, very little, until the end of Islamic empire and degeneration there did see financial corruption. But the, the heart of the message is that we don't need to live like this. Who, you know, if we ask about the alternatives which people are pointing to, positive money um, have made a very good suggestion. Why should the government borrow from the banks at interest? If the banks are going to create money out of nothing, the government might as well create money out of nothing and borrow it without interest. This is just a very logical policy, which we have followed in this country. In 1914, the Treasury issued money. It was not the Bank of England that lent the money at interest to the Treasury. It was the Treasury that issued the money, and they were called Bradbury's, because the man who signed them at the Treasury was John Bradbury. So we have not only the principle, but the practice in our history, and likewise in America, in the 19th century American politicians, Abraham Lincoln, printed dollars using green ink, so they called them greenbacks. 
and he paid for the civil war. One reason why governments lost the direct control over that was that they had abused that power uh, in the 1920s in Germany, yeah. for example. I mean, there is, yes. and, and in fact, the inflation of the post-war right. years and the 1970s was perceived to have come from, did come yes. from, excessive creation of money, which actually didn't help people. It just increased the price of everything. So can, can I say that is why I, as a Muslim, favor the more traditional monetary solution? I like positive money, but what I like more than that is commodity money, because commodities, gold, silver, other commodities, cannot be created out of nothing by anybody. If you want to create gold, you have to go and dig for it. So in a system of commodity money, there is a factor cost. You don't just press a button and create money, you have to go and work for it. And that ties the real economy to the monetary economy in a way that printing money or pressing buttons never will. Um, yes. Can I just say that, first of all, to Paul Sharma, the system didn't collapse in 1971, the Bretton Woods system. There had not been a financial crisis at all between 1945 and 1971. It was dismantled very deliberately. Um, secondly, um, on um, the inflation of the 1970s, that arose because the banks were being deregulated. Before the 1970s, before competition and credit control, banks had been regulated by the Keynesian system of limiting their power to create credit. It's an amazing power, but Keynes was clear that you had to limit their ability to create masses of credit and the kind of credit that they created, i.e., they had to create credit for the purpose of productive activity, not for speculation. What happened after the 1970s was that it began to be possible for banks to create credit for speculative purposes, thanks to deregulation. We then got inflation, for which everyone blames the trade unions. So um, I want to say this in answer to the question about is usury wrong. Absolutely, we are living through the most usurious age in human history, in my view. We're living in, through the age of the wrong tier. Um, the man who has an asset, has some money, who lends it on effortlessly and makes money without effort by extracting assets from others, but also by extracting assets from the ecosystem, which is why Keynes was so clear. That's why the general theory is called the general theory of employment interest and money. Interest was absolutely fundamental to Keynes's theory, and he wanted very low rates of interest, not only to balance the power between borrower and lender, but to maintain stability within the economy, to enable people to create works of art without having to make a huge profit out of them. In other but, words, he demonetized but, by um, keeping but rates very low. Isn't, there, isn't that Tarek's point about usury is about, and, and the, other, the other point is about interest per se, whereas it's, it's a little bit, uh, given what you said before and what you're now saying, I think it, it sounds a bit more like it's the, the level of the interest rate rather than the fact of it. Yes. Because I, actually, you know, Keynes was a great believer in creating money and he thought actually yes. the gold standard was you know, one of the reasons why yeah. the Great Depression had happened because yes. people, the, the amount of money had been falsely forced down by needing to tie it to yeah. a commodity. I have to say, So the, yes. in principle, I mean, usury in a technical sense of interest rate is rather different from just a usurious as in a high interest rate. Yes. I mean, it's, the, the point is that 
Keynes and I accept that, that if someone is in the business of lending money and managing and assessing risk, I don't see any harm in them earning a fee for that purpose, for that skill. But that fee has to be very, very low to be sustainable because, because of the nature of credit creation and because of the need of the economy and also the ecosystem to have very low rates of interest. If interest rises exponentially, then the rate of exploitation has to rise exponentially too to repay the debt. So I don't agree with positive money that the, the money that the credit creation should be handed to the public authorities. And then just because I've worked with debtor sovereign governments in Africa, Latin America and Asia, and I really think there's a big question about whether politicians yeah. should be trusted with, we, with money creation. Can I ask three more uh, people to come to the centre aisle? Um, Elijah Komu, Francis Coppola and Chante, Chante Joseph. Could you, uh, could you come to the centre? And if uh, maybe Elijah could ask the first question, if he's there. Oh. In God's economy, we are meant to love people and use money. But we have ended up loving money and using people. What can we do to make sure that it the current generation and the future generations don't do it. Thank you. That also takes us a bit back to the question that we didn't answer from before, which is what step should the banks yeah, yeah. take? I think the next, we'll, we'll stop thinking about post-1971. <laughs> we'll get, also we're gonna, we'll go to that issue. So could we have uh, Francis Coppola? My question might take us in a slightly different direction. It's very evident that there are shortages of money in places in our society. And I wondered to what extent those shortages of money are to do with distribution problems rather than amount of money. And if so, what can be done about that? Very um, good question. Chante. Joseph, I'm sorry if I've got your pronouncing your um, name wrong. They've just gone to quest they get my question because um, I couldn't remember exactly what I wrote <laughs> down. <laughs> the sense of it. Can you give us the sense of it? Um, I think it's coming right. Question. Words do have a way of disappearing up into this dome. <laughs> so um, I wanted to ask, um, like, to what extent are payday loans a result of the general acceptance of creating money out of nothing? And is our greed culture um, a, co a contribution to it? Or is it almost just natural for things like this to happen? I mean, like, I'm only 17, so I can't take out a payday loan. But I mean, like, I, I wouldn't uh, take out one anyway because of the horrible stories I've heard about people taking out loans to, you know, pay for fancy phones and whatnot, but like to what extent is this our own fault or is it a fault of our society? Payday loans. I think, and that, has, that does get to, uh, Lord Scadelsi was just asking the, the phrase, I mean I think it gets to this broader issue of not just the, the level of interest but our sort of belief that everyone now deserves credit, which was also part of what helped to feed the crisis that many people feel in the US for example, that that was one of the things that brought the financial innovation to the level it had, was this, this desire to give everybody a chance to, to buy a house when they really shouldn't have got the money to do it in many cases. 
Lord Skodelsky, do you want to? Yeah, um, I mean, the concrete steps. How do we liberate future generations for this need, to, this love of money? Well, we have to decide what a good life is. I mean, that's the primary question. What is a good life? And then money serves that purpose. But we have to make the original decision. Otherwise, we're adrift. And uh, we just go on and on for, what, another 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, million years, just accumulating more and more without ever asking what is the end to which the accumulation should, should, um, uh, should be um, um, uh, geared to. And, and until we ask that primary question, what is a good life, what is good, the ethical question. Otherwise, we just tinker around with technical improvements in the banking system. Of course, we can try and make it more stable and, uh, and, um, and, and do that sort of thing, but we haven't really got to the heart of the matter, I would argue. Second question, of course, the lady is absolutely right. Distribution is very close to the heart of it. I mean, Keynes's argument was with rich societies, we are right, really in a position to slow down. And, and take life more easy, easier and attach more value to non-monetary activities. But of course, and that ignores the question of distribution. What's been happening in the last 30 years is that societies, Western societies are becoming increasingly unequal and inequality has grown and, and, and you know, millions of people in Britain are living below the officially defined poverty line. So of course um, there's a shortage of money and distribution has to play a huge part in it. And as to payday loans, well I'm not going to answer that. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, um, I think, again, um, what you must not do, no one must really place themselves in such a position if they can avoid it, of having to pay usurious rates of interest in order to get money. And that's, that's where the old morality of neither a borrower nor a lender be does have some, some relevance. Paul Sharma, do you want to engage on the, the payday loans? I know not as, a, not as an official comment, <laughs> but just because this is something that various sides of the regulatory authority, you know, community have yes. had to deal with because people feel it's wrong, but on the other hand, if people can't get money any other way, you know, it's meeting a need in another sense. Yes, I mean, as, as, as you know, but the, many uh, um, here might not know, but in the new regulatory system created about a month ago, the, the subject of payday loans and their appropriateness uh, um, uh, 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 is, is not one that falls within the regulatory remit of my organization. What I would say from my uh, several years of working at the, the Financial Services Authority, the predecessor regulator, um, is, there, is there, are, there are a number of issues here. Some of them are moral, but some of them are some basic questions of financial literacy. Uh, 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 and the other thing I would say is, a feature of, uh, of uh, financial services products uh, that one often comes across is one finds a product that is not wholly unsuitable for all people in all circumstances, but then when one sees it in practice, one discovers that actually it's sort of suitable for a quite narrow set of people in a quite narrow set of circumstances, but somehow ends up uh, uh, um, being used in a much wider range of circumstances. Uh, and that is to do with, uh, that is to do with a number of issues, regulation, but also financial literacy, uh, both of which now fall out of my 
current responsibilities. That means you can talk about it. <laughs> Should mean that you can uh, that you can talk about it more freely. Uh, thank you, Paul. I'd like to um, very quickly ask for a couple of last words and responses. Uh, from Tarek and Anne, but also throw in a couple of questions which I think are quite interesting that have come in. as an anonymous question. How can good money lose 99% of its purchasing power over a century? Does good money need to retain its value? Gets to some of the things we were saying before. And also from Alistair Wood on Twitter, to change the way the nation feels about money, do we need to change the way we measure the success of our economy, for example, i.e. think about things other than GDP. So a very, very quick word on, on those and maybe something yes. else that's come up. Um, well, we have to think about purpose. Um, my purpose as a, as a Muslim is to worship God, not to maximize profit. Uh, we are living in times where the making of money and the maximizing of profit have become like a religious objective. And that has to change. People make their own decision where they stand there. The measurement unit of success has also become financialized. We measure success in monetary units, whether it's a company balance sheet or a nation's gross domestic product. And we really need to start changing that. I mean, a happy but monetarily poor nation is actually more successful than an unhappy, monetarily rich nation. And if we think otherwise, then we're very lost. Uh, I think you know, people want to do the right thing, coming to another point. They want to care for the environment and be good citizens, but we're so heavily in debt that we're spending most of our time thinking, how can we repay debt? Companies are engaged in economic growth, not because we need economic growth, but because we're forced into it in an effort to repay our debt. Third world countries are destroying their rainforests, not because they want to, not because they're bad citizens of the global environment, but because they're heavily in debt. And we have to realize that we are trapped in a box and we have to get out of this box and our regulators need to help us. They've been appointed not to be co-opted by the system. I think it is a disgrace that when a man like Paul Moore at HBOS, before the financial crisis, should stand up and say this bank is running to disaster because of its financial lending practices, that he should be sacked and the man who helped to sack him should become the deputy chairman of the FSA. If that's the kind of system we're in, there's no hope for us. Anne Pettifel, brief, yes. briefly. Very briefly, I, I just want to go to Francis Coppola's question about distribution of money. Um, I think that people were forced to borrow subprimers because they didn't have a roof over their heads. People take out payday loans, not because they want to, but because they're desperate. And that's because our system has eroded earnings, has eroded job opportunities. And we need, at these times, when, when the private sector itself is so heavily indebted, it cannot invest effectively. This is when we need the state to play a more productive, a more proactive role in helping redistribution of wealth, in, in ensuring that there is social housing, for example, for those who cannot afford to take out mortgages, but we're, we've eroded that. And for me, that would be fundamental to um, distribution, redistribution of wealth. So what can we do? I come back to the fact that I began on this particular road when I tried to think about why, before the 1970s, there were no African countries that had sovereign debt crises. Why had they happened after the 1970s? This is where I started. 
And it's not that African leaders and governments and so on were good boys between 1945 and 1971 and bad boys after 1971. It was the framework that had changed. They had money thrown at them after the 1970s. That didn't happen in 45. That framework prevented that from happening. So to answer the question, what do we do with people who love money more than people, I think we need to reintroduce the kind of framework that anyone of faith is, is familiar with, the Ten Commandments, give us rules to live by. What happened in the 70s was, 70s was we tore up the rules. We've got to reinstate them. Paul. Whilst I take, take your point, I, I don't think the facts entirely match. I mean, the, We're going back uh, to the 70s again, yeah, aren't we? So, yeah. So African independence largely occurred in the East, in the sort of 60s and mid 60s. I mean, there was there was not a period of time in which one actually saw what the pre-71 system would have done to Africa. There was not. You know, you may be right, you may not be right, but it's hypothetical. No sovereign debt crisis at all over that period. Well, I think and the there point is many there were a lot, of, that. a lot of those sovereign those countries sovereign. didn't exist, so it is quite so hard. So the question so is, you know, that there may have been people like the president of Zambia who had no money when they became independent, and, and bankers walked through his doors and the IMF said, take the money because the copper price will never fall, borrow because that's the most efficient way. Your country can't raise capital, you don't have a central banking system, borrow money from Morgan Stanley or JP or Goldman Sachs. And they did on the advice of the IMF and they got into deep trouble. And that did not happen this before the 1970s. I think it's one of those times where I talk about uh, that great phrase, we will continue the discussion offline. <laughs> <laughs> Which is usually, at the BBC, it's when people get really fed up with an argument. Um, internally, I should say. Um, Lord Skidelsky, I'm going to give you the last word. I'm going to give you the last word. <laughs> so I won't say any more. And um, I think we've got two minutes to go, haven't we? <laughs> Uh, it's been a very, it's been very wide-ranging. This and um, sort of all kinds of uh, extraordinary, interesting things have been said. But but I think one needs to, you know, I think it, it was all summed up really, um, from my point of view, in one of those questions. Perhaps it was the one, uh, one of one of the ones that appeared on your screen, um, and that is, um, should we change the way we measure the success of an economy? Uh, and um, should we just not uh, uh, measure it by recorded gross domestic product? I would put it a bit differently. Um, I, I don't think we should um, uh, necessarily change the way we measure the success of an economy, but I would change the way we measure the success of a society. Because an economy is only part of a society. We do many, many things that are not in GDP. We value them and they're a very large part of, of our lives other than just doing business in order to um, earn a living. And I think we have to have a broad idea of what, um, what a good society is. Um, and in order for that to happen, we have to have an idea in our own minds of what a good life is. What is the kind of life 
that we want to live. And collectively, that makes up a good society. I think that is a moral question. It's not a question of efficiency. Uh, of course, we can make our economic system more efficient, but that will be just more efficient at pursuing the goals that lead to you know, more and more emphasis on money and the love of money and less and less emphasis on use. So we decide what a good life is, and then we gear policy, we gear our own lives and policy to the achievement of a good life. We have to settle that moral question, or everything else, I think, is, is in, the, in the realm of technical, technical solutions of one kind or another to admitted problems. Thank you very much. I mean, you've taken us appropriately back to the heart of this issue, but also the heart, of course, what, of, of what makes it so difficult, because it may be hard to think of what a good, efficient financial system would look like, but it's an awful lot easier than to think of how we would get agreement on what a good society is and what that would look like. Perhaps we take comfort in the, in the technicalities um, because we can't really see how we could have that other argument. But we have had a start and we've raised an awful lot of the issues tonight. So thank you very much to Tarek Eldawani, to Paul Sharma, to Anne Pettifor, and to you, Lord Skidelsky, and to all of you for your questions and your, and your Twitter comments. Thank you very much. Well done, man.